0: Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders, just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change? All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates, melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com.
1: Let's get brave.
0: Welcome to our interview series on brave feminine leadership. I'm so excited today to welcome Rabia Sadiq to the conversation. Hi, Rabia. Hi, how are you, Melissa? Very well, thank you. Before we kick off, Rabia, I might just share with our audience um, a little bit of your bio as a starting point. So excuse me while I look down, I've got a bit to get through. So Rabia is an international humanitarian lawyer, a retired British Army officer, an author, a professional speaker and a hostage survivor. In 2006, and a war crimes and terrorism prosecutor In 2006, Rabia was awarded the Queen's Commendation for Human Rights Work in Iraq. In 2009, was the runner-up Australian Women of the Year in the UK. In 2014, was one of Westpac and the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence. And in 2015, delivered a TEDx talk to a standing ovation um, called Courage Under Fire. Rabia was in the British Army from 2001 to 2008 and involved in a high profile hostage incident in Iraq. This resulted in a PTSD diagnosis and in suing the British armed forces and government for discrimination. And Rabia held them to account for systemic discrimination of women and ethnic minorities and led to some profound changes in the way they do things. Rabia is a proud wife, a mother of triplet boys, a stepmother to three girls and a boy, and a human mother to Holly the Westy Poo, and Holly might join us in our conversation today. Rabia, um, I feel like we should just pause for a minute. Um, You know, what an incredible bio and incredible journey you've been on. That was a bit exhausting, wasn't it? I would love to ask uh, for our audience, for people who haven't had the pleasure of coming across you before, would you mind just sharing perhaps a little bit about your story and perhaps some of your, where some of your drive and passion comes from?
1: Yeah, sure. I guess like many of the people that might be listening um, to um, our time together, I come from a mixed and rich ethnic background. My father is an Indian Muslim, my mum's an Anglo-Saxon Australian. Um, I lived my early years with mum and dad in India, and as I was approaching school age, they made the very brave decision, I guess, that migrants make every day to leave their comfortable, familiar life uh, in search of a new land that will provide prosperity and health and safety. Uh, so um, that was probably the most profound gift my parents gave me but for them it didn't come without sacrifice because back in those days when we arrived in Australia in the mid 70s white Australia policy was still very much alive so what that meant for my family like many families from a non-anglo-saxon background was there was this pressure and I guess this expectation to fit in we were kind of told to check our differences at the door. And if we were to be accepted, we really had to blend in and to become invisible. And I guess in those days, I saw the world very much through my parents' eyes. Uh, And both of them for different reasons would come up against some form of discrimination and racism and ignorance. And whilst they handled it with grace and dignity, it was clear to me, even as a child, that the wounds that were inflicted through those harsh words ran deep. Mm. and I guess that that was the seed that was sown for what eventually in me became this passion and commitment um, for social justice. Um, I remember making a decision quite early on that I wasn't going to live my life in the same way, that it was so sad and upsetting that people could be so harsh towards others and so quick to judge others based on you know, the colour of their skin, the accent with which they spoke. And I guess that really became the driving force behind decisions and choices that I would make later on in my life in terms of how I would live and what I would do with my life.
0: Did you always know that you were going to go into law? Like what sort of, what what were you thinking about when you were young? You know, you had this passion for sort of Inequality and social justice. What did you think that might look like?
1: I think the decision to use law as the vehicle came later, as I was approaching um, sort of womanhood, as it were. Um, I think I knew that I was someone for whom justice was a value that that burnt very um, uh, strongly within me. Um, I think spending a large part of my childhood feeling very much like I lived life on the fringes and that I was an other mm. and um, didn't quite fit in. And unfortunately, like many, many people, um, I was the victim of sexual abuse when I was young as well, okay. which I think exacerbated my um, uh, feeling of, of, of um, difference and, um, Because I had this secret that I was keeping, because back in those days, we didn't speak of such things, of course, um, for fear of the shame and the stigma that it would bring on the child and the family. So I think for me, um, there was always this sense of um, the need to do something to make the world and my community more just, more honest, more equal, kinder that word we don't use a lot and I think that it took a more um, clear form as I got older and as I was given the second gift by my parents which was the gift of a wonderful education that would help me and empower me to make definite decisions about how I would direct those passions. So um,
0: you know I think you've been um incredibly brave in in talking out about many aspects of your journey and your story before before and i think sexual abuse is one and i just wondered on that front you used a really interesting term there around you know it was a a secret that you had it was you know you didn't want to speak out for the for fear of the shame and stigma and those sorts of things how did you end up kind of finding your voice around
1: that I don't think there's any um, quick answer to that. I guess the best way I can explain it is for over 20 years as an international humanitarian lawyer, I was telling other people's stories Mm -hmm. um, as a way of helping them to seek and obtain justice and find their voice. And then when I um, fell victim to a very unexpected form of discrimination, institutional, I guess, discrimination, Um, I realised that I was in a privileged position where I had a voice, I was a leader, I was an influencer, I had intellect. Um, I dedicated my life to justice and to truth. And so I realised that I could not fall silent um, to what was happening to me. And -hmm. that I had a responsibility not just to myself but all of those around me that had come before me that were silenced and that would definitely come after me um, to speak up and to hold um, those to account who were doing wrong. And I guess um, it was only then when I realised and I was convinced by others whom I trusted that my story would serve others and mm-hmm. would serve an important purpose and help others to understand that they weren't suffering alone and that, that the ordinary person could... Um, not only obtain justice, but could impact change, that I realised that um, it was time to share my story.
0: We'll circle back around to a little bit of that. And, you know, our plan today uh, for the audience is is not to share Rabia's story. There's a lot of places you can, can find that and, um, you know, Rabia... Um, Tells that so eloquently, and today our conversation is a little bit more about getting behind some of the the mindsets at some of the decision points along your way. And I just wonder, as a starting point, if I can just go back to the kind of um, humanitarian lawyer side of things. Was there a um, was there a role model that you saw? You often hear that you can't be what you can't see. Was
1: was there a role model that you sort of saw that? I think if I was to pinpoint some of the key people that had a real powerful influence on me, the first would be my mum and dad. Mm -hmm. Um, Dad was and is a very wise man, a bit of a people's poet. He's one of those elders that people would come to for wise words in times of need. Mm -hmm. And I remember dad used to say to my little brother and I that there would be times in our life where we'd be called upon to step outside of our comfort zone for the greater good. And the decisions we would make in those times would define our character. Dad used to talk about character a lot. Mm. Um, So dad was a very strong um, role model for me, as was my mum. Given the conservative times um, when mum and dad came to Australia, mum was actually a very modern woman. Mm. She worked full time. and, you know, both my mum and dad gave me a very strong work ethic, but also mum modelled um, the modern woman principles of someone who um, uh, did what she loved and she was passionate um, about and was also a loving, devoted mother. Mm-hmm. And So I suppose she was the first woman that um, demonstrated to me that you could be both and you could have you know you you could you could be this woman where you had an enriching profession but also was a nurturing um, mother and could derive fulfillment in in both of those things um, and and also um, have a choice and exercise that choice perhaps more importantly um, in terms of growing up i have to say that growing up in the 70s and the 80s there weren't a lot of role models that looked or sounded like me certainly not in Australia yeah um and certainly when I think of my early days at school the only kids that kind of you know were dark-skinned that kind of lived life on the fringes were the immigrants and the aboriginal kids that I was at school with Mm. and um it probably wasn't until I was older and I um went to secondary school that a couple of key teachers became my inspiration that saw something in me that I didn't quite, hadn't quite identified in myself then and um, really encouraged me and nurtured me. And it was probably um, in my final year of school when I was given my first leadership opportunity um, as school captain, that's when I really started blossoming.
0: Mm.
1: It was probably through the arts, through drama and music, um, as a teenager, and then um, getting this incredible opportunity to be the ambassador for my school and to be a leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think after then, probably my biggest hero has been Mahatma Gandhi. Wow. And the values that he lived his life in full alignment with, and the sacrifices he made in terms of powerful, steadfast protest for what he believed in.
0: Yeah, how incredible. How incredible um have the um the impact from school as well you know you so often hear those stories where it is a teacher who potentially first recognizes some of those skills and and helps with confidence and your mum and dad i mean that's
1: yeah yeah well i actually think school saved my life um and that's probably not being over overly dramatic i was i don't think i was on a great trajectory as i was a teenager um particularly after suffering with the abuse um You know, I I felt alone. I felt so alone in the world. Mm. And um, I didn't have a voice and I felt completely powerless over my life. And it was finding myself when I needed it the most um, at that critical time when the girl's becoming a young woman in an environment where for the first time I felt like I belonged. And for the first time I started believing that I was worthy of better and capable of more.
0: So you found yourself over in the UK and I've missed various aspects of of how you got there, but you're over there and an opportunity comes up to join the British Army. Yeah. And um, what was going on in your mind at that point in time? Why did that sound like a a good thing to do?
1: I left Australia in the late 90s in search of realising this career dream, this calling to practise in the area of international humanitarian law and i had spent a few years in the uk by this point and i was working full-time and i was doing postgraduate studies and i was um, volunteering at two human rights agencies and i was getting increasingly frustrated because i was getting nowhere closer to accessing the people in the places that needed that i felt was my destiny to help these people Mm. and then on a whim after doing some research and Um, meeting some um, army officers that became really good friends of mine, I realized that this vehicle, this institution could be something that I could work to my advantage. Um, And what what I mean by that is, I knew that at the time the British Army was working in theaters of conflict and in war zones, um, the uh, the army legal officers um, were working at the Hague in the international criminal tribunals
0: mm-hmm. so
1: having exhausted what I thought were all other options at the time I thought that I would give the military a go and use this institution as a way of accessing and serving the people that I so desperately wanted to help so that's really what it was it wasn't any passion or desire to be a part of the armed forces that was never the driver Yeah, it was a means to an end if I'm being frank absolutely um I imagine a reasonable step out of your comfort zone at the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> you could you could say that. I think I had to pick up my parents from the floor when I announced to them that I was joining the British Army. Right. Um, and
0: um, I want to skip forward then to, uh, and people will be absolutely intrigued if they don't know the story, but I want to skip forward to the moment where you were invited to jump into the hostage situation. And, you know, people have big moments, big decisions, um, you know, points in their life where um, hopefully people don't have to come up against something quite that extreme. But, you know, in context, in their own situations, pivotable mom- moments, I guess, what kind of went through your head when you were asked to step into that situation? <laughs>
1: uh the first reaction was face, it was it? yeah yeah the first reaction was paralyzing fear you know to be ordered as a legal officer to go in and to lead hostage negotiations um for two colleagues that had been detained by terrorists that was never something i ever dreamed that i would be asked to do i wasn't a trained hostage negotiator you know this was not my area of comfort um, once I got over the paralyzing fear and disbelief that I was being asked to do this, my dad's words came into my mind. Yeah. Um, you know, the words that I um, repeated to you earlier, and I realized that like it or not, the uncomfortable truth of the situation I was in was that the lives of two colleagues rested on my shoulders now. And for various reasons that I won't, won't go into now, I was the only one that at the time could lead these negotiations and give our two um, friends a chance um, of life. So I had to step up. And I had to step out of my comfort zone because there was no other option. The other option was not um, not an acceptable option to me, which was to do nothing. Yeah. So, um,
0: after that, um, you know, you tell elements of the story that ultimately led to, um, I guess, suing the British government. Um, and I just, I just want to um, check in with you. And it's circling back around to, I guess, the point in your career, or the point, the point on your journey, where all of a sudden you made a decision to start telling your story um, and potentially some of the things that you went through, um, you know, helping helping understand that it was time to share your story because it was going to help other people along the way. I just, um, I guess I'm keen to get into the mindset around, you know, you're completely gutted and you can tell any elements or none, none of you know, what you would like to say here, Rabia, but, you know, you're completely gutted at this situation because there's been a very evident discriminatory event take place and you've made a decision to not not lie down and accept that, to actually um, step forward and do something. Just talk us through that because that must have been an enormous, yeah. enormous thing to work through.
1: Yeah. So for those that don't know the story, I think we've taken probably a quantum leap. So very, very quickly, I'll explain. I was sent in. um, The negotiations took um, eight and a half, nine hours. Um, There was a point along the way where everything went pear-shaped. I I then became a hostage along with a number of my male colleagues. Um, And we were put into a secondary cell um, separate to the two guys that I'd been sent in to to, I guess, rescue. Mm. Um, And in that cell for over eight hours in front of my male colleagues, I became the prime target as the only woman, as the only Arabic speaker, as the only one with Muslim origin. Um, I was seen as the traitor at that point and I was humiliated and I was tortured and I was degraded. Um, It was a miracle that eventually we were all rescued. And then what followed um, was a situation that um, played out over days and weeks where all of my male colleagues that were assisting me and that were in the prison cell with me were um, acknowledged, were recognised, were celebrated, were supported with trauma counselling. And one of them, my, my um, main assistant was um, decorated by the Queen and awarded a military cross. And I, was, I couldn't have been treated more differently. I received no trauma counselling, no acknowledgement, no recognition, no medal, no decoration. And in fact, I received a written order ordering me to never speak of the role that I played in this incident. Um, We call it a gag order in the military. And I knew um, that this was wrong on so many levels. And so, um, and this was also the second time in my life that I had been told to never speak of the injustice that I had suffered, and that hadn't escaped me either. Yeah, but what I realized is that um, 20 years on from the first time that I was silenced, a lot had changed. You know, I was I was a lawyer, I was a leader, I was a role model, I knew better, I could do better and differently, and I owed it, I owed it to the those that I led and that I had served um, to write this wrong. And so for the next two years, I pursued every informal avenue that was available to me to address this this grievance. And at every juncture, the door was closed in my face um, and the military and the government um, hunkered down and closed ranks and were not willing at all to entertain the prospect that perhaps this was unjust and that this could be so easily resolved. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't seeking a medal or glory. Um, All I was seeking was acknowledgement in my um, staff appraisal um, that would never have seen the light of day outside of the military, just an acknowledgement of the role that I had um, played on that day. And all that would have done was gone next to my record and helped with um, future promotion and job prospects within the army. Mm. So I wasn't seeking a lot. no. And for some reason, um, uh, that was denied. And so two years later, having exhausted all these options, and um, it got to the point where the military um, branded me a problem child because I dared to speak out and hold them to account. There was definitely fear there because they knew that the law was my vehicle. Yes, yes. and by now I'm a senior officer and I had been entrusted with a lot of responsibility. And so what institutions like this tend to do is they then brand you a problem child and try and discredit you and mm-hmm. push you to the margins and alienate you. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened to me. And the only option for redress left to me, which I knew would see the end of my military career would be to mount this discrimination case against the Ministry of Defence, so the British government and the armed forces. But by now, I'd gone to Helen back a couple of times. Mm. um, And um, I knew that I had to pursue this. Because if this was happening to me, with all my privilege and all my voice as a lawyer in the institution, what on earth was happening to those that didn't have a voice? And so I sued the army and the government. You know, you don't wake up on a Sunday morning and decide you're going to sue the government. No. As you can imagine, I agonised over that decision and that took 18 months to get to court. And if I thought that I had suffered a battle before then, it was nothing to the war that came afterwards, wow. that came at a huge personal and physical cost to myself and my husband. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had, I had right and justice on my side and you know there are so many times in history that powerful men in this case men yes powerful men and powerful institutions completely underestimate the ordinary person and in this case it was an ordinary woman who had um had to rebuild them up from nothing
0: rabia it just um you know makes me think that people in the audience i'm i'm coming off the back of you saying ordinary woman, um, there'll be people watching our conversation today and they'll just be thinking, I could never do what Rabia did. I could never take those risks. I I I couldn't do that. What would you say to that? How do you respond to that? You must get that feedback.
1: I've heard that before. And I can say hand on heart with no false modesty that we truly don't know what we are capable of as human beings until we are pushed to the brink. Yeah and until we find ourselves in a set of extreme and extraordinary circumstances. Mm. I truly believe, not just from my lived experience, but from my 20 plus years of seeing the best of humanity amongst the worst of humanity, that ordinary people are capable of extraordinary things when pushed. Mm. So yeah, my story might be a bit different and a bit unique, but I'd say to those people that might be listening now and thinking, blimey, I couldn't do that, um, never underestimate what we as human beings are capable of.
0: Rabia, it's, it's you know, the most incredible story and, you know, it's the most incredible real-life experience, um, not just a story, but... How did that, how did the combination of those, or what, what was it, do you think, in the combination of those two events that really led to you finding your voice about this?
1: I think, of, I think it was spending over two decades being incredibly in awe of and inspired by the bravery and the conviction of those that I served and represented and advocated for.
0: Yeah, we've um, talked a little bit um, prior to this conversation, but one of my inspirations was Brené Brown. And she talks about uh, courage um, and she talks about shame um, and she talks about the fact that we've all got it, um, that you have to talk about it and letting the light in kind of lessons any of those feelings is that you know do you resonate with that statement
1: absolutely yeah Brene Brown is a um, is a source of inspiration for me as well and I love what she says about um, the courage in vulnerability Mm. and the need to, to acknowledge that we all have the shame and I think for me um, what she and others, what our Indigenous brothers and sisters, what incredibly brave people around the world have taught me is about the power of the human story to impact change. Mm. And if we are willing to share our stories, we must be willing to share the ugly and the beautiful truth. You know, the this year's Australian of the Year is an incredible young woman who has fought for the right to tell her story. Mm. And in so doing, to share the story, um, that um, has absolutely impacted change, and has given a voice to victims who have, to you know, up until this point, felt that they were suffering alone
0: mm.
1: and remained invisible. Um, you know, I can think of countless examples um, of where um, a human story has has brought about fundamental change, um, and I guess the the one that I that springs to mind that's close to my heart is, you know, for years and years and years, the atrocities and the injustices in Syria were playing out, and the world um, wasn't really listening. Mm-mm. And then one day we wake up, and on the front cover of our paper is this tragic, lifeless body of a four year old boy mm-hmm. um, um, washed up on um, a Turkish beach. And we hear the story of this innocent boy and how he died and how his mother died and how his family had fled from horrific injustice and the desperation of his family and thousands, hundreds of thousands like him. And that picture and that story of that little boy changed everything. And within 48 hours, the world didn't just take notice and listen, but mobilized and started intervening in the Syria crisis, you know, the power of the story of one person? You
0: know, I saw a quote the other day, um, and it was by a professor at the London School of Economics, and, and I'll paraphrase, but it talked about that when it comes to leadership, you know, the past was about muscles. Um, we've had the era of brains, um, but jobs in the future will be all about the heart.
1: Yeah.
0: And I just wonder, um, you know how does that sort of resonate in you? What are your experiences of leadership? Um, you know, what style of leader would you describe
1: yourself as? i I resonate with that um with that um, theory, with that quote. Um, I think more and more as we talk about AI, and how so many jobs are going to be replaced and how we're entering this new era of um, digitization and um, globalization although i think COVID may have um, (laughs) have put a different slant on that i think the one thing is humans that can never be replaced or can never truly be um, uh, mimicked is our heart Mm. and i think when we speak about the heart we speak about humanity and we speak about values And if I was asked what sort of leader am I and what sort of leadership do I teach in my work now, it's values-based leadership. It's about getting back to the core of what we value and living and leading in alignment with that. Mm. And that takes courage and that takes honesty and that takes humility. And we flounder and we fail at times because we're fallible human beings. But I think that our values are our compass that can get us back on course And I think when we look around at what's going on in the world and what has been going on in recent years and in the last 12 months, we're being called upon um, to step up Mm. and to live and to lead with greater humanity and and to face the ugly truth. Mm. Uh, But in order to face the ugly truths about our planet and our world and the injustices and the gaps um, that are getting wider and bigger, I think we have to address them differently and it is with love and it is with humanity and it is with compassion and it's with a giant serving of hope and optimism that we're being called upon to do things in a different way and if we can just seize upon that we can actually create the ripples of change that we're all capable of and what's beautiful (laughs) is that you are seeing this being embraced by ordinary people. You know, the people-led movements that we are seeing around the world for me is a source of huge inspiration. Inspiration. So we're not waiting for governments and powerful men. Um Just getting on with it. To, yeah, we are. People people are saying um not in my name anymore. And that we're going to be the change. And we're going to start in our communities and um in our families and in and in our cities. And it's growing from there. What would you, um,
0: in one of the sort of themes, if you like, that's coming out of a lot of the conversations I'm having is that, um, and, you know, it is a generalisation, but there's a lot of women, when it comes to leadership positions, they self-reject before putting themselves forward for something. So they talk themselves out of it before putting themselves forward. And then equally, a large number of women, including many incredibly successful women I'm interviewing in this series, who have waited for a tap on the shoulder with the thought that if they want me to do it, they'll come and ask me to do it. And uh, only to be surprised when no one tapped them. And after the event said, why didn't you put your hand up? Yeah. Um, You know, what do you, you know, have you seen examples of that? Have you lived examples of that? And what would you say to women who are sitting out there talking themselves out of going for a bigger role?
1: Um, I absolutely have seen examples of that, and I think, to some degree, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us women have been guilty of that from time to time in different ways. And I, and I believe that it is time that we backed ourselves more and we held each other up more. Mm. We have to be united as a sex first and foremost before we can seek and demand of others' equity of opportunity. What does that look like? Um, That looks like us being a more united sex before we can call upon men to stand with us, in my humble opinion, because I have heard, um, you know, as a lawyer representing others and in my own journey, I have experienced and heard of countless experiences where it has been women, who have cut down, worked against, undermined other women. Mm. And I think that that is actually something that we are more guilty of as a sex. I think absolutely there is a culture, particularly in the Western world, where we start off as young girls with um, such healthy self-belief and then somewhere along the line that starts getting chipped away Mm. by the things people say about us and the words we hear about ourselves um but that's why um it is the responsibility of those of us that have succeeded that have a voice that have benefited from opportunity we need to teach a better way and we need to actually role model a better way Mm -hmm. and what I say to young women and girls is it starts in our homes how we are as daughters, the relationships we choose to enter into and nurture, and um, how we choose to live our lives and the choices we make.
0: Mm. It's very powerful. And, you know, I was um, speaking to someone in an interview the other day who, when we talked about brave feminine leadership, their response to that was that it's women standing shoulder to shoulder.
1: It is. Um, it is. It is true. It is. It is simply that it is women standing shoulder to shoulder, but it is also women. We are we ha- are capable of such strength, mm. givers of life. You know, um, we are capable of such strength, such fierce love and protection. But mm. it's not just about standing standing shoulder to shoulder. It's about lifting each other up mm. and That's having cool. each other's backs. And yeah. it's not about networking. It's not necessarily about coaching and mentoring. It's championing each other. Mm. Men have been doing it very well for a long time. We we have got to upskill ourselves better and we've got to commit to being more united. Mm in my humble opinion.
0: I love that and it may well lead into the final question that I want to ask you, which is, from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership look like today and does it need to change?
1: Uh, For me, brave feminine leadership is embracing without apology our whole self and our true self and our feminine power. but not in a masculine way. It is about embracing all that is feminine and owning that without apology. It's about using what we um, have best um, as part of our, um, uh, I guess, tool set, which is heart and Mm -hmm. values and Mm -hmm. resilience. And it is about committing to being united going forward. I think if we can embrace our whole selves without apology, if we can back ourselves, if we can hold each other up, if we can lead with values and with heart and humanity, because that's the leadership style that we as women have demonstrated um, that we can emulate best. Mm. Um, And I think if we can empower and inspire each other to do that going forward, our communities, our homes, our world will be in a much better place. And that's what I've committed this chapter of my life um, to pursuing.
0: Rabia, I've got goosebumps um, listening to that. I truly do. I just wanna thank you so much, um, not only for joining the conversation with me, but for your bravery in in sharing your story in role modeling vulnerability Um, and strength. Um, It's just incredible. So I just encourage anybody who hasn't come across Rabia's story before um, to really dig in um, and go and find out all about it. So truly, thank you from the bottom of my heart. And uh, I've loved talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Melissa. Mm. Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.